Mentor My Mix is made possible by Pyramind Music and Audio Production Institute. Evolve your sound with expert trainers and up-to-date courses designed to fit the needs of emerging artists and producers. Go to Pyramind.com for details about the San Francisco campus and online programs. Welcome back to the Mentor My Mix podcast. And today I have as my guest, Michael Starita. Starita is a Mississippi-born San Francisco Bay Area music producer. He's a multi-talented artist and songwriter. And he and I first really got to know each other uh, sitting on the board of the San Francisco chapter of the Recording Academy, a.k.a. the Grammys. That's right. <laughs> What's up, Michael? Hey, brother. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks uh, for having me oh, here. Oh, it's such a pleasure, man. Yeah. So good to have you here, and so good to see how much you've evolved, just personally, as a producer, and as an artist, in the time since we sat together around the table of the Board of Directors for the Academy, mm-hmm. of which you became the president. Yeah, I was the president. Uh-huh. I think that was around 2013 or so. Yeah. 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 Well, look. That was we're, a fun ride. <laughs> that was almost 10 years ago now. I know, man. I can't believe it. It's uh-huh. like going by quick. <laughs> you know, life goes by so quick, and that's why yeah. I love to have these moments where we get to talk about that. Talk yeah. about the, the water that's passing under the bridge and all of the things that go into making that happen. Because when you talk about crafting a career as a music producer, as an artist, as you've done, there's a lot of divergent pieces that come together to make that happen. And the path is never the same for any mm-hmm. two people. I see, I've you know talked with people about this, we teach about this, and there's so many things that go into making that happen. And I've been particularly impressed with what you've accomplished in these last 10 years, because I know, you know, we, we both came from very similar paths, I'd say, early on in our career. And tell us, what, what year did you come to San Francisco? When did you move to SF? That would be 98. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, came out to visit. I'd actually, you know, start out like a lot of people do, you know, I was into making music. You know, and was down in Mississippi, went to Full Sail mm-hmm. back in the 90s, sure. 96. And, yeah. you know, I just didn't know where I wanted to go. I showed up out here to visit and I was like, wow, I didn't know <laughs> this yeah. could exist, you know, especially, you know, seeing a big city for the first time and especially that being San Francisco. So, yeah, just to jump right in, I got off the plane, I got a roll of quarters and uh, toward the recording studio section out of the Yellow Pages. You know, said, I want to be here. Why San Francisco, in. though? I mean, why not L.A. if you're coming out west? That's a great question. you want to be in the studio business, huh? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, everybody growing up, they have somebody they look up to, and that was my Uncle Billy. Oh. He dropped out of school when he was 15 and went on the road as a guitar tech with this big band and uh-huh. buses and traveled the entire country in Canada. And, yeah. And so... I saw that and I was like, oh my God, I want to be a rock star, you know? And he uh, he ended up out in San Francisco. He oh, moved out here, okay. you know, back in the 80s. Uh-huh. And that was what I, I set my sights right then. I said, when I grow up, I'm going to be a rock star in San Francisco with Uncle Billy. No and, kidding. And so I, that dream kind of faded out for a little while. And then it surfaced back when we were graduating. Um, I had a friend who was like, he was working for Ohm, oh, Ohm Records. Yeah, uh-huh. And he said, man, San Francisco is the most amazing place on earth. You know, you got to come visit. So I visited and then it started to stir all that up. Then I visited my uncle again. You know, it'd been years since I'd seen him. And then that whole dream kind of came to fruition at that point. It was like, yeah, you know, 
that's right. I was going to move to San Francisco and be a rock star with Uncle Billy. Well, I'm here. Uh-huh. You know, so. Well, what kind of rock star did you think you were going to be? <clears throat> what, what was the vision for that? Well, I was, you know, always into rock and roll growing up uh-huh. and played guitar, had bands, and then dance music. I was going to say, well, you, you landed right at the foot of Ohm Records, and obviously that must have had a strong impact on you. I never was into electronic music growing up, and then there was a club that opened up in like 93 in Jackson, Mississippi called The Groove, and it was full-on dance music, and I kept hearing about it, and I kept trying to get in and get in, and you know, just to be quite honestly, I, was, I did some psychedelics and ended up in the club, and I went, ah. Oh, this is what it's all about, right. you know, this yeah. big now that, dance floor. Now, that's a common theme I hear a lot. Yeah, uh-huh. so, um, and then everything changed. I started hanging out in the DJ booth and seeing this and seeing this entire culture that was going on. I started going to raves, and so I started selling off my guitars and got some decks, mm-hmm. got a sequencer, mm-hmm. got a keyboard, you mm-hmm. know, everything started to happen then, and then as I went off to full sale, I was this hybrid model, I guess you would call, of like mm-hmm. really steeped in acoustic and, and rock and roll, and then the electronic edge as well, too. I was deep into DJing and making tracks, and so that's that whole kind of came together, that whole thing came together, and then when I ended up out here, you know, one of the big records that changed my entire outlook on music was Delusions of Grandeur. The Har- ah, Harkis the Brothers. Brothers. Yeah, and so yeah. ironically, when I came out here, tearing that page out of the yellow pages at that time, uh-huh. I called all these different places, and Hyde Street Studios was one of them, and I bugged the hell out of that manager. He kept saying, fax your resume, and my whole line was like, I don't fax my resume to anybody. I'll hand it to you and shake your hand. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. And that's it. I only want one second of your time to look you in the eyes, shake your hand, and hand you the resume. So I went, ended up at Hyde Street, and he made me cook in the lobby for about an hour. Phil was the uh-huh. business manager back then. And he Jeff sweated Cleland you, huh? In the lobby. Sweated me, and I sat there for the whole hour, and uh-huh. he finally is like, man, this guy's not going away. Uh-huh. And so shook his hand, handed it to him, ended up, he was originally from Mississippi. Uh-huh. He wanted to open up a room upstairs to start doing dance music, uh-huh. which I was into, and it just so happened that that room was the room that Delusions of Grandeur was done in. Wow. <laughs> and I got the gig, I and I became it. the house engineer for Phil and Candyland Records, which was in that room. And then that led to meeting Jay Bowman, which led to meeting Scott Hardkiss, Gavin, and kind of being in that little vor- uh-huh. vortex. <laughs> what, what, a, what an, uh, an amazing time mm-hmm. to be here in San Francisco and come up during that age. Um, it's so funny, because literally I've been working with Gavin Recently, mm-hmm. we just uh, remixed one of Scott Hardkiss's tracks from... Rain Cry? Yeah, Rain Cry. Yeah. That's right. We we're just in the mm-hmm. studio mixing it here uh, just recently. And I mean, that's just a landmark time coming up in San Francisco and to be doing that at Hyde Street. So it's just interesting to note. I mean, a couple things happened there, right? The connection, Mississippi, the guy, you, you kind of had the personal connection that kind of helped foster the relationship maybe and mm-hmm. and would you say that the education then at full sale was uh, something that really also contributed to being able to get a job like that at that time absolutely mm-hmm. just to be quite honest back then they don't care about degrees or anything like that at the studio it was yeah. more like the drive 
And mm-hmm. I think being familiar with gear, knowing what it is, and being in that environment gives you a sense of confidence yeah. to where you can go in there and look somebody in the eye, shake their hand, and say, I can come in here and do this, you yeah. know? Now, hey, my whole thing is like, say yes first, and then figure out how to do it later, right? <laughs> So uh-huh. I landed this gig, uh-huh. and then he's like, oh, I've got all this gear, and we want to open this room in the next couple of months. And anyway, I came back out here and moved, and basically I said, hey, can you give me some time, you know? It's like, oh, you got about a month for you open and i basically locked myself in that room with manuals like yeah oh you you did the rtfm yeah yeah exactly (laughs) so i was i was actually you know a little nervous and so i went in there and i learned every piece of gear he had like um an xp50 he had a triton at that time and there was a there was another keyboard and the MPC 2000, of course, which I already knew. Yeah. And then Digital Performer uh-huh. at that time on uh-huh. a Mac 8100 with an Audio Media 3 card. Oh we had my, we oh had my, two yeah. ends uh-huh. for digital audio, uh-huh. two stereo in. Uh-huh. So anyway, like that's my stuff good for sampling. That. Yeah, that's what I did with it, <laughs> uh-huh. you know. And uh-huh. so yeah, just went in there and banged it out. I slept in that room for the first month, pretty much, just reading manuals and like making beats and figuring out the whole room and making sure it was wired right. And uh-huh. and then when it was time to go, mm-hmm. I was ready. I knew that room like the back of my hand, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, well, but you were almost confidence. very fortunate to have a month. I mean, most mm-hmm. most guys just get thrown in the room and say go. Swim Absolutely. or die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was definitely fortunate. But, you know, going back to the educational piece of it, that confidence for me to be able to just read that manual. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. And understand the philosophies that were behind it. So, you know, there's people have different opinions about going to schools and things like that. But for me, it was invaluable uh-huh. to, to have that education because of that confidence that it gave me. That's cool. And Mm -hmm. you made a lot of records there in that room. Made some records for sure in Uh that room. Yeah, that was all dance music. And then I kind of started moving away from, which is funny, I had decided I was tired of hustling and being in the studio all the time. And then I had the chance to do webcasting for EDNet, which is Tom Scott, who was the chief engineer at Skywalker Sound and basically doing ISDN work as Mm -hmm. well. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and webcasting. So I jumped ship from the studio for a little while for that steady, nice paycheck and right. that cush living that you always <laughs> dream about. And then that led to working at Dolby for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a little chunk of time that I jumped ship out of the hustle and bustle of the studio. And then that's when it became even more clear why I started this. It was nice to have a paycheck, have dental insurance and all of that stuff. But man, I started to feel very empty inside and like I was very much misaligned with who I was as a person, an artist, just a creative in general. And so I made the leap back out. I put in two weeks notice at Dolby, which is hard to do, you know, because yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a hard, hard gig to get. Uh, yeah. And a hard company to leave. I know people yeah. who've been there a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the people I know have been there over 20 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So having to jump from that comfort because of the discomfort I was feeling of not being f- fulfilled creatively, mm-hmm. that was extremely hard. And so I jumped back into being a partner at Faultline Studios, which is now gone. Is that the one uh, that was here at Soma? Yeah, it was here at Soma. Yeah, I remember Mm -hmm. when you did that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh You know, and that was a large room. You know, we had a 50 series knee from Coast. Uh Uh-huh. And around there, there was no electronic music going on. It was like bands, indie bands, 
yeah, mostly just indie rock stuff. So I jumped back into just doing all rock and roll and stuff again. Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing any dance music at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And that was great because I got back to my roots per se. It was almost like I just started over again. You know, I went through that and then I decided to be freelance from there. Is that your Mississippi-born roots, would you say? Yeah, uh-huh. I would say so. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just love recording live instrumentation, you uh-huh. know, and I love to rock out yeah. still to this day. Yeah. You know, I love funk. So, yeah, you know, I'm pretty well-rounded when it comes to that sort of thing. Well, it's given you a, a broad perspective on the industry, mm-hmm. right, as well. And I think that's what you can see now as I look at Starita.com, your website, and how you present now – it shows somebody who's had time to reflect on all those years of development. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's gone through the ringer, really understood. You know, I think earlier we were talking about that point in every creative person's career where they go, okay, I really feel the urge, the need to express myself, to be an artist, but I also have the need to pay my bills, right? And then, you know, how to balance those two things out internally within yourself and still come out with a positive practical result that allows you to make a good living and support yourself and continue to nurture your career as an artist. And it seems to me after Faultline, you came to a crossroads there. Was it, was, was that, am I right in in terms of your timeline there? It went a little bit further past that after I was freelance for several years after I was president. It was around 2016 that I said, why do I still not feel completely fulfilled? Mm-hmm. I'm doing sessions all the time, producing records and all this stuff. It's like, I thought back to that that day I had graduated high school, and it's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to major in music? All I want to do is play raves and, <laughs> and make, you know, house music and breakbeat. And like, I just want to, you know, have uh-huh. a great time and make electronic uh-huh. music. And I said, well, I could go to college and I could major in music and then be a band director, uh-huh. you know, it's like, well, I'm not playing 2,000 person, you know, raves, crowds, dance floors, whatever it is. That's not what I want to do. And then that's when I made the decision to go to full sales. Like, well, I want to make these, I want to make my own music. That's all I care about. Yeah. But how do I make money doing that? Well, I need to learn how to make records. Mm-hmm. And that's what made that decision to go to school and pursue engineering and producing mm-hmm. on a professional level. Mm-hmm. So, as things started to progress over the years, you start focusing so much on making everyone else's records that I was like, I still have not even put out. Yeah, I did a remix for Michael Franti. We had done some remixes or done some releases on different labels, but it was very sporadic and it wasn't Starita, me. Mm-hmm focusing on birthing this creative project that I've had inside of me since I was a kid. Yeah, your identity, your identity. your creative identity and mm-hmm. and how you express that. Yeah. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was always with groups or bands or mm-hmm. something that I was doing those releases with. So, 2016 is like, why am I still not fulfilled? And you know, it was because of that. And so I said, well, I'm going to step on the other side of the glass. Mhm. I'm going to make my music now. Mm -hmm. And then that in itself was scary Mm -hmm. because it was my ass that was on the line and (laughs) out there in the front. You know, sitting back and Uh making records is always some forward-facing artist or band or something like that. But it's like my image, me, like out there to be, you know, I'm a creative, so it's like, oh, God, everybody's going to judge me, Uh you know, and... Uh 
oh, this is the greatest music I've ever made. The next day, it's like, oh, I'm the worst. I'm terrible at this. I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, the even self doubt comes in. Self doubt, yeah, yeah big uh-huh. time. Yeah, and your biggest enemy. Mm-hmm. It uh-huh. is. Uh-huh. Most of the time, we just need to get out of our own way. Uh-huh. So, so true. That's when I uh, made that leap and started putting out my own music. And you know, I'd been in this industry for so long. We're so conditioned to make music for monetary gain after you've been in this industry for a long time. Yeah. We start to get conditioned that way. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, I want to be creative, but I need to make money at the same time. And then if you start working with any labels, you start to see that becoming the end goal a mm-hmm. lot of times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's starting to have an effect on the creativity. And the, some of the projects are driven towards more pop sensibility and things like that. And it starts to condition you to thinking that I'm creating this thing for the end goal of making money or being successful. And it starts to take away from the creativity. And so definitely when I first started down that road, I had to unlearn all of that. So the first groups of releases that you see, I'm a little bit more safe Mm -hmm. in the things that Mm -hmm. I was doing. Safe in terms of your perspective of what you think the consumer would want from you or what you think would be acceptable? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that was also because of my fear, mm-hmm. me being in the front as yeah, well. Yeah, I've, I've been working at a you know relatively high level with a lot of different artists, and, and, and then you, you still start and to, you still are quite frankly yeah, to this day, right? Yeah, and, and we're going to talk about that, but uh, yeah, keep going. I, I like where you're going with this. Yeah, it started to I started to realize that I was making decisions not based on what I felt. Mm-hmm. It was more on what I was expected to do. So then there had to be another check-in, another self-awareness thing. Well, why am I not satisfied with the music that I'm putting out right now? <laughs> oh, that's a big... That's Go back to the drawing board, you know? Uh-huh. And I, I think it's worth stating that I don't think that it would have been possible if it weren't for meditation and spiritual practice that I've had for 20 years to have this self-awareness of like, I'm unhappy, mm-hmm. something's not working, Yeah, what is it? Right. You know, uh-huh. let's sit down with it because, you know, we run a lot of times from these things, you know, whether we fill that empty space with, you know, substances, relationships, more gear, whatever, <laughs> eating, whatever it is. Like sure. there's that, you know, that's that kind of uneasiness that is human's existence of there being something maybe missing and we're always trying to fill it. So, But it's that uneasiness, like if you can tune into it, that actually propels you forward, right? I think, you know, the drinking, the habitual eating, whatever, the drugs, whatever, is something that actually stifles that feeling. Mm -hmm. So if you eliminate all those elements just long enough to tune in through meditation practice, I, I believe that's probably a lot of what guided you through that process, if I'm not mistaken, yeah? Because I know mm-hmm. you're, you're a big sitter. You, you like to sit. I know yeah. you, we've talked about yoga, and you're a yoga practitioner as well. First, what drew you into the meditation process to make you feel like that could be something that would help you? It was interesting because I've always been spiritual in a sense, you know, growing up. felt like there was something bigger than what I was seeing. I wasn't quite seeing the full picture, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just always had that feeling, even since I was a little kid. Like an intuitive feeling? An intuitive feeling, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize mm-hmm. it until lately. I started to have these flashbacks. I remember I used to sit when I was a kid. Because my parents, they worked full time and I would be at home during the summers. And I remember I would sit there and 
I didn't know what I was doing, but I was meditating at mm. that point in time. Mm-hmm. But what drew me in, I guess I was in, it was around 99. A friend had gotten a book by the Dalai Lama for Christmas. And I'm like, hey, you going to read that? She's like, nah. And I'm like, I hear this Dalai Lama dude's kind of cool, you know? <laughs> so I started reading that. It was The Art of Happiness. And oh, yeah, it was like, that. he uh-huh. was, uh-huh. it was like somebody was reminding me of all those things. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, that Uh makes sense. Uh And so it unlocked this whole door. And I went down this deep rabbit hole of Buddhism and going to all these retreats. And I took a very Western approach to it. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be hardcore Buddhist and, you know, beat the hell out of myself. You Uh know, I'm going to reach this goal of enlightenment. You know, it just basically became another neurosis and addiction in Uh itself. Well, the minute it becomes a goal, Mm -hmm. I think that's what the Buddha would say. You know, the goal actually takes the the end game out of the result. Yeah, (laughs) it's absolutely true. Because, I mean, the whole thing is to wake up to who you really are. And if the only thing you're doing is switching yourself from the lost person to now the ego of the spiritual seeker, Hmm. (laughs) you know, it's just Uh another role you're playing that's Uh actually not who you are Uh as well. So, yeah, I went down that road and it just came from that, like, I was always searching for something, you know what I mean? And a lot of that was in my music, too, because... All art gets you out of the mind and gets you into what your true nature is, you know. And that release from being in the mind so much, it was very cathartic and just a great thing. And I think that that's a lot of what attracts me to music and creating is that it gets us out of the mind. And I didn't realize it so much until later, looking back. Always the search, you know. And so that general uneasiness of human existence, you know, and mm-hmm. which is basically living through your thoughts, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. <laughs> so it creates this tension, you know, you're always trying to get back to, you know, your natural state, which is just awareness that which precedes thought. Yeah. I'm not sure where we're going there. I can get it. Well, it, it, yeah, no, it, it's, I think it's important because, <laughs> you know, everybody struggles with finding their identity and, mm-hmm. you know, finding their expression and what that means for them as an artist. And it's it's no surprise now that you've come to a place of actually producing music that has a very spiritual component to it. This album that you put out last year, I know you refer to it as ambient mm-hmm. uh, music out the gate, but it's really ambient spiritual mm-hmm. in a way, right? So just talk a little bit about that and what brought you to that. I know we've traveled really fast in over the mm-hmm. course of your career here right up to this album, and I do want to cover some other ground with you, but mm-hmm. I think it's important since we kind of tapped into that spiritual <laughs> path here yeah. to talk a little bit about what led you to producing this style of music now. And actually, while you're talking about it, what I'd like to do is let's play a little bit of this track called The Dream. Yeah, and, we can play a little bit of that. Let's play a little bit of and talk a little bit about where this came from and the inception of this project. Mm-hmm. So this is called the dream, right? Yes.
So who's the vocalist on this? Tell us about That's the vocalist. That's Trent Park. Right. And you've had a long collaboration with Trent over uh, the years. Yeah. Yeah. Trent's my brother. You know, I met him many, many years ago here in the Bay Area and through the Grammys as well. The Recording Academy had a Grammy songwriting competition and he won. Mm-hmm. I mean, thousands and thousands of entries, and uh, he's just an amazing songwriter and um, lyricist. Mm-hmm. And you get it through this song as well. It's much longer format. There's two lines that he says, and it just continues to build and build and build. But as what we did with this project, it was March 2020. Everything had shut down. Oh, yeah. And I started going, well... There's a lot of time here, and there was an energetic shift, which I thought, from a spiritual aspect, the pandemic, I think we'll look back, and it might have been one of the most important things to happen in human consciousness mm-hmm. ever that mm-hmm. we've seen. When has the entire world been forced into retreat mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. almost a year, mm-hmm. you know, with nothing to do, not the job? To drive to the, all of the distractions that we talked about to fill that whole hole that's there, mm-hmm. we're gone mm-hmm. at the flip of a switch. Yeah. And it was terrifying for a lot of people. Me as a meditator, I was joking with my friends at the meditation center. I'm like, this is a moment we've been training for our whole lives, <laughs> you know? Um, uh-huh. And so when all of that stuff fell away, there was this, I don't know, I, the only way I could explain it was this spirit, this energy that I was starting to tap into and and I just started creating music. And it was the first time that I had created with no rules, no nothing, no expectations, and like whatever I channeled. That's all I did was channel things. And so I started reaching out to friends, you know, Robin Applewood, Trent Park, other artists that are usually on the road all the time that weren't anymore that I would have never been able to collaborate with, specifically like Christian Scott. I mean, that guy, he tours nonstop, 300 shows a year all over the world, the trumpet player, um, and he's amazing. And so I sent him stuff, and he was able to track at his house. And so we tapped into this thing. I said, the only rules, if there is one, and they were like, is there a creative direction? I said, the only creative direction is that everything has to be channeled. You cannot use the mind. Mm. (laughs) You can only use the heart. Mm -hmm. Whatever comes through you Mm -hmm. is nothing is wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just like, let it speak. So the entire album is like that, Mm -hmm. and it was created as one large piece of music. The songs go into each other. Mm -hmm. And so I just channeled this entire thing, and it had this profound effect with the people I was working with. Everybody was like, what are we doing? It Mm -hmm. just feels good. Yeah, well, I think that's where I got the whole spiritual component from. Mm -hmm. It just calmed, you know, I was listening to it this morning at home, Mm -hmm. and I meditate too, and I was getting up from my meditation and I put it on, and it just made me go, (sighs) (laughs) which felt really good, you know? It's like I was gearing up for my day, and immediately the wheels were turning, Mm -hmm. and I put this on, and it just made me take pause. Mm -hmm. It was just a good feeling, you know, and I know it also evolves into some kirtan elements mm-hmm. that you draw from here. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know that's not in this song in particular. How many songs did you do with Trent on this? Three, I think. Yeah, yeah okay. there's uh-huh. three with his vocals on uh-huh. it. Yeah, Trent, you know, we've had such a long history with each other. He was like the first person. I was like, if anybody's going to get this, mm-hmm. it'd be Trent. 
you know? Yeah. <laughs> because he's, he's got a very uncanny way of just dropping into any project and really becoming the project, uh-huh. you know? Um, kind of like when you're driving a car, you become the car, you know? <laughs> you know, I'd love to get him on the podcast one of these days because I've been watching him evolve and develop as an artist as well and producing his tracks and watching him record from his home studio mm-hmm. and putting out the call to make music videos and raising money to make his music videos. He's one heck of a creative guy. I'm really enjoying watching him evolve and seeing what he does. He's really, really grown into who he is as a creative person, Yeah, especially the visual elements as well, too. It's just it's mind-blowing. It's so beautiful to watch somebody actually finally align with who they are and embody it and have the strength to continue down that path and just be who they are. Yeah. And that's it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's cool, though, to see you be able to tap into your heart and create this very heartfelt music. And yet at the same time, you're still a potent entrepreneur, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm looking over all of the different things that you do. And I know recently I saw you uh, posting about going down to Muscle Shoals. Yeah. Tell us about that. What would you do down in Muscle Shoals? (laughs) Because there's some history there. There's huh? a lot of history <laughs> down there. I know. I mean, I just was watching Aretha, uh-huh. the, the movie Respect. Yeah. So it just, it made me think about that. Mm-hmm. And so cool. What was that project all about? So it's longtime client and dear friend as well, too. I brought him in. He's a guitar player, Jeff Hayashi. Mm-hmm. And we've been on different projects together, him playing guitar and as a writer and things like that. Wait, is, that's not the Jeff Hayashi who was <clears throat> in... What what bands was he in? Was he not in? Uh, oh gosh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, go go ahead. I'll, yes. I think I'll, it'll come to me. So Jeff has always been like straight a man. I want it. His heart is in soul music, soul mm-hmm. and R and B, just mm-hmm. that classic sound, Muscle mm-hmm. Shoals sound. And he's been bugging me. I mean, it's been ten years. Like, man, we got to do the soul record. Man, we got to do the soul record. And you know. The January 2020, before everything shut down, we just happened to be driving through Alabama, me and my wife and my mom. And I wasn't even thinking about Muscle Shoals. We were just doing a road trip because I go back to Mississippi every year. And all of a sudden, I saw this sign that said Muscle Shoals, 20 miles. I'm like, oh, my God, we're by Muscle Shoals. So turn the car around, haul ass there. And we end up doing this tour of Muscle Shoals Sound Studios where so many records were done. And... I got the name of the uh, the manager, and then, of course, a global pandemic happens, and uh, then oh, yeah, that, that yeah, whole right. thing, uh-huh. and then Jeff comes up this last May down to Mississippi to visit while we were down there again, and he's like, hey, man, I'm ready to do that soul record. What? Let's Let's do that, and I said... It's funny you say that. I said, you know, there's only one place to do a soul record, and that's Muscle Shoals. And he mm-hmm. has moved to Atlanta mm-hmm. in the past three years. So he's like, let's do it. So I'm like, all right. So I start making phone calls, and we booked all the rooms there with Fame Studio A, Fame Studio B, and Muscle Shoals Sound Studios because there's two studios there where that whole legacy went down. So anyway, flew down there shacked up for three weeks filmed the whole thing cut a whole album eight songs i produced the whole thing put the band together we had ernest boom carter on drums you might know ernest he was the drummer for bruce springsteen he did born to run he was the drummer on that then went off into the jazz world for a while and then otis mcdonald who does a lot of really cool lo-fi beats and stuff but he's also an excellent producer and will blades on organ so I went down there and we made a soul record, a Muscle Shoals classic soul album. 
Then I mixed it just this last month. I just got back. Did you track it on tape? Was no, it? we didn't. Okay. Uh-huh. We were going to, but uh-huh. it just becomes a big deal when yeah. you're trying to do that much. We've, we've kind of gotten spoiled now. <laughs> yeah, we have. <laughs> and just the speed that we had to do it, uh-huh. you know, yeah. not that we were rushed, but that, you know, it exponentially increases the time that it takes. And yeah, you got to, yeah, that whole concept of just shuttling tape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We forget what that's all about. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yep. We've already got this May on the books again. We're doing the second album, uh-huh. you know, so I'll be back in Muscle Shoals again. So that'll be my third. Same crew? Same. Same. Well, we're going to have some local folks come in. We had local Muscle Shoals horns players, backup singers. Mm-hmm. This time, I think we're going to do the full band, drummer, bass, everything, Muscle Shoals. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And how's that getting released? My label. Uh-huh. I have two labels. I have Starita Records, which is more... All encompassing, no genre boundaries whatsoever. And that's where the music we were just listening to got put out on. No. No? So when I made that album, I Uh said, I need to put this out Uh a different way. Uh I don't want to go through the majors. I want to form a new record label Uh that is specifically dedicated and focused on music that pays homage to spiritual awakening. Ah, That's it. And so I was like, well, what's it going to be? And this be still records there's an old saying in verse be still and know that i am god and that's not related to any religion but if you be still then you would go back to your natural state of open loving awareness so i just thought that was a perfect name and then i told a friend of mine sean johnson and the wild lotus band who also blend western and uh kirtan so mantra music Mm -hmm. but with western instruments Mm -hmm. arrangements Mm -hmm. He was about to put out his album, and this was all during the pandemic, and I formed that label. I was going to start putting this stuff out, and then we joined forces, assigned him to the label. So all of a sudden, it started to become a thing. So we have one label that focuses on spiritual music, and then one that's more genreless, mm-hmm. open to everything. I think that's what got me there. I'm thinking genreless, then you're blending it all together, but I see where you're going with this now. Yeah. So you've got Be Still as the avenue for your spiritual, heartfelt, ambient productions, and then you've got Starita music. That's very visionary of you. I like that. And yeah. there's elements to that that also then open you up to other services that you offer, as I see here, because you're doing label services yeah. as a label, and then you can turn around and offer kind of the network that you've put together to others to mm-hmm. be able to take advantage of that opportunity. Is that right? Yeah, our label services is actually, that's a big portion of business that we do. We have a whole team of marketers that have worked from Apple to HP, very high-level tech marketing that now, are creative. Now, stop me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but is this an affiliation with your wife? Yeah. Right? With Tam. With mm-hmm. Tam. Tam Street is playing an instrumental role in that, right? Mm-hmm. She yeah. is. Yeah. And then we have graphic artists. We have a website developer. We have copywriters. We have a whole network of creatives that we can bring in. It's like an agency model, and we can do anything from you have an idea that you're humming in the shower, mm-hmm. can make the record all the way to the music video, all the way to massive marketing campaigns if you want to do it, or smaller ones for independent musicians. Yeah, Starita Records is really based around that that whole model. And then Be Still is where mm-hmm. the heartfelt mm-hmm. you know, stuff that's just dedicated to spirituality. Mm-hmm. Cause you know it's like you it's got a, the brain and the heart working together. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh-huh. It's, it's that sort of thing. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I dig it. That, that's really cool. 
So the two labels, I mean, that's a lot to juggle. You got mm-hmm. two labels, you, you've got a label services division, you've got publishing, publishing companies, mm-hmm. obviously, yeah. in association, you've got to manage the uh, publishing rights, yep, uh, the neighboring rights and whatnot with those releases that you're handling. So how do you juggle all this, right? I mean, you've come a long way, you're still embracing yourself as an artist, but you're still making records with other people. I mean, you've made a lot of records with other people and you're continuing to do that. What's your secret, man? (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot of like running in one direction for a while and then having to change directions. Like, all right, this label, this label, the label services thing. This wasn't just, you know, the flip of a switch. I had Bay Area Music Collective for a long time where I built this large network of creators, which then kind of rolled into this label services program that we started doing. And then that naturally led over to the publishing side of things. But I have administration through Universal, so they help with a lot of the catalog management and registrations and things like that. The thing was, is just balance and integration, mm-hmm. you know? I, I would say balance, integration, mm-hmm. and longevity, right? Yeah. Because it's that a- arc of building relationships and building connections in the industry that you're able to now bring together in this very networked kind of creative way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's impressive. It's cool. It's been almost 25 years of this coming together Mm -hmm. and and just a lot of self-reflection and a lot of reinvention and a lot of change in directions and a lot of failure. Yeah. But when you do that for so long, you know, you just meet so many people and none of it really has to do with me. It's all the people that I've met over the course of 25 years that make this possible. You just never know who you're talking to and who you meet and where they're going to be down the road. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason that you run into people, the reason we've run into each other, you know, and you just mm-hmm. never know what's going to happen. 20 years down the road, this person might pop up and yeah. be like, hey, man, mm-hmm. check this out. Yeah. You're like, and then it's just a fit, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that there was a lot, a lot of work at first, and it's still a shit ton of work, you know, right now running all of those things, but... I feel like everything's starting to finally integrate spiritually, creatively, and business-wise. Well, if you were to look back on these 25 years now since you came to San Francisco, would you be able to pinpoint any one point of that career arch that was like a real significant moment or transition for you professionally? Or any one thing that you would say, man, that really made a difference when I achieved that or when I did that? Or is it really the whole arch? You know, I, I know the whole reach of that development is obviously critical, but is there any one point you could point to right now and say, wow, that made a huge difference in how I perceived and grew as a professional in the industry? Yeah, I wish I could say that there was that one defining moment, but it really is a lot of different small wins mm-hmm. together. Some of the biggest points were jumping ship from a corporate job. That will wake you the F up really uh-huh. quickly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. um, there's no stability. And, it, and it's all an illusion. The whole stability is an illusion anyway. But you start getting a regular paycheck and, and a set amount of money every month. And then you start to build this little Lego castle around it. Well, now I can get this apartment. Yeah. Well, now maybe I can get this car, you know, mm-hmm. lease a car. And you build this entire prison around yourself that's <laughs> built on that. Mm-hmm. Now, if you pull that paycheck out of it, then Mm -hmm. that whole thing's going to come crumbling down. And Mm -hmm. that's scary as hell. Mm -hmm. That was a big turning point. I have to say, as much as I have lots of mixed feelings about the Academy, I do think that, you know, you always think that getting these accolades and these things are going to make a big difference in your career. This validation that we tend to look for a lot in this industry, Mm -hmm. 
There was a time where I did a record for Laura Sullivan and then Los Amigos Invisibles. Same year, they were both nominated for a Grammy. Los Invisibles uh, was Latin Grammy. Latin, right? they, Latin? they were in American Grammys as two, uh-huh. but also nominated for Song of the Year in the Latin Grammys in a general category. Right, so right, that's uh, huge, uh-huh, you know, a general uh-huh. category. So all that happened at one time. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh man, this is awesome. Uh-huh. It's, we're, train's starting to roll now, you uh-huh. know? And then it, it all happened. And then, you know, you get home from the Grammys, you know, at the end of the week, you know, Monday. And it's Waiting like, for the phone to ring. Yeah. And uh-huh. nothing changed. Uh-huh. That same old empty feeling started coming back. I still had to hustle. Uh-huh. You know, my bank account wasn't filling up, you uh-huh. know. So that was an important lesson in itself is yeah. to quit looking for validation from the outside. Mm-hmm. That success is only measured by where you're at mm-hmm. with yourself. Sure, it's great to get gold records and Grammys and things like that. But to be reminded that that's not why we do this, that fades away quicker than anything. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's good yeah. for a Facebook post for a couple of days yeah. and then yeah. it's gone, you know? Yeah. So, um, well, you, I think, you know, the Grammys or the Recording Academy as an organization do a lot of good things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, do. music cares and there's many components to it that maybe a lot of people don't realize, you mm-hmm. know, their nonprofit arm. But when it comes down to it, they are an award show. Right, yeah. they are. They're about the awards, and and that's a money making business in and of itself. It's a big money making business, yeah. and that contract they have with CBS is a big deal. And it'll be interesting to see how that evolves now under kind of the new guidance that they're trying to establish there. And and I know that there's a lot of new visioning going on with the Academy, but I, I agree with you ultimately. And I think the state of the music industry has changed so much too over these last 10, 15 years that the importance of those awards has diminished a lot to a lot of people um, because there's there's a lot of different awards out there. And at the end of the day, the music industry has become so niched, mm-hmm. right? There's so many niches and that importance of focusing inward and developing yourself as I think what you're really tapping into here. And that creates interest in you because you're interested in you Mm -hmm. as opposed to being interested in everything outside of you. It's a very interesting psychology, I think, you know, that it's important to relate. I'm glad you tapped into that because that awareness in and of itself, I think, is so important in the development cycle of anyone's career because younger folks don't necessarily get that early on and it takes time and maturity. So I'm glad you shared that. Mm -hmm. That's really important. And yet still at the end of the day, it's nice to get the accolades, right? Yeah. But knowing that that's not necessarily what it's all about. And also, you've done a lot of work. Just the other day, I saw you post about this muso.ai site, which is Music Credits Verified. And just to look at that and see that you've got 110 credits for different projects that you've worked on. That's not all of them. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. So talk a little <laughs> bit about this. Talk a little bit about Muso, because I'm sure a lot of people aren't familiar with it. Yeah. So now that we're in the digital age, credits is a big deal. It's been a very hard uphill battle for a lot of us growing up. that had physical medium, an album to look at and see where it was recorded, who played bass. Oh, and, and it was such things, a big you know? deal. I know with the Recording Academy, that's been a big deal with, with Maureen Droney and driving the P&E Wing initiatives around mm-hmm. metadata and how engineers and producers and songwriters and performers are properly credited for what they do. So do you see Muso as being a strong bridge for that? I do. You're seeing a lot of platforms like this uh, popping up. There's Jaxta. Muso is one of them. Muso is interesting in the fact that 
Once they verify all your credits, they aggregate all of the streaming data, the Shazams, all the cool metrics you want to see. You know, they aggregate that into one place. So anything that you have credits on, it pulls the streams from it, the Shazams, the amount of playlists it's been added to. And it shows it right there. So anything that I've got a credit on, it pulls the, the all that data and puts it in one place and gives you this big impressive number, you know, which is really cool because you never know. I mean, you're going to work on so many projects over the course of your career and you work on them and then it's just gone and then you're on the next one and you don't really realize how far that bird has flown, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and how much ground it's covered. Yeah. And so it's really, really interesting to see a platform like Muso doing this. I think it's very valuable and they really stepped up their game lately. Their support is impeccable. I mean, they almost immediately respond to you mm -hmm. when they'll start working on your credits um, mm -hmm. to make sure that everything is right. Mm -hmm. How do organizations like that survive? What What is their incentive for developing this deep data tracking system. And it's cool to see it just so, you know, obviously you've got 859 million streams of music you've worked on, uh, 12 million Shazams, 78 million playlist reach, 9.9 thousand playlists that you're on. I mean, I love seeing those kind of numbers. It's, yeah, it's, it's cool. very cool. But what do you think incentivizes the companies themselves to, to do this? That's a great question. It's a lot of work, I could imagine, for them to do that. It's uh -huh. on a subscription base, so you can get uh -huh. the pro version. That's how you get access to analytics. Okay. So there's a subscription model that's in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's face it, credits and metadata are not the most sexy thing in the world, but <laughs> they made it that way to where they're uh -huh. aggregating all of that data. And uh -huh. for you to see these things you can share, you know, producers and engineers and songwriters, they're going to be like... I think it, it's kind of, especially with the Spotify wrapped Yeah, I was going to say, it almost <laughs> looks like a Spotify wrapped page. Yeah. They've got the black and the green going on here. Mm -hmm. So they've kind of definitely pulled a page out of there. That's had a lot of reach, you know, mm -hmm. people at the end of the year posting all of their big numbers. And it comes back to that validation sort of thing. Mm -hmm. where, but I think with this, it's not talking about just me per se it's all of the people that i've worked with what impact their music has had you know and that to me it's i think they've got a really good service in doing that mm -hmm. you know because you just there's no way to track that <laughs> well yeah i mean there's all music there's various different crediting agencies yeah. out there so it's interesting to see how this is going to evolve and how they are each going to intersect and who's going to dominate eventually because one will, I think, mm -hmm. in order to maintain consistency of credits throughout the industry. But this has been a problem, right? And I'm glad to see mm -hmm. that there is this much traction happening around crediting for, especially for engineers and producers. For sure. Yeah. It's really, really important because mm -hmm. if you go to any of these other sites, Discogs, you know, all music, nothing matches up mm -hmm. there's some credits are on one platform some are on another some mm -hmm. are over here some are over there yeah, you know and yeah. it's just it's such a pain and jaxa does a good job as well as muso and aggregating all of this stuff but they don't have this specific feature but there's just a big interest in it because i know there's a lot of money sitting on the table too and they can't figure out there's master royalties that they can't figure out where they go mm -hmm. you know all these mechanicals there's money on the table for publishers, for songwriters. That's another thing that people should always do is really get their head around the basics of the business and get registered with everybody. Get Especially on the that. songwriting publishing side of things. Especially on yeah. that, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's it's really easy to do. And learning that side of the business, that was another, speaking of milestones, was 
you know, when I started a publishing company and I have to give props to Ned Hearn, that the oh, Yoda yeah. of- The very um, Yoda of music law. Huh? Oh my God, <laughs> Ned. He's helped me since the beginning of my career. Oh, that's and I great. Love, I love that guy so much. He's uh -huh. one of the nicest people on earth. Uh-huh, he is. And just so knowledgeable. Yeah. And he's been doing it a really long time. Yeah. And it's funny, if there's a conference or anything going on, it's like, there's Ned mm -hmm. learning. You know, mm -hmm. he's got his head around anything that's about to happen, mm -hmm. you know. So mm -hmm. Ned, I trained under him, you know, doing contracts and stuff with publishing. And just you look at the industry in a very different way. It also gives you confidence again to where you know that all of your ducks are in a row and you're not getting pushed around mm -hmm. by anybody, especially yeah. a label. And what that does to the creative environment, if you've got split sheets, you're writing with people and everybody's got their split sheets and everybody knows that everything's cool and that business is out of the way, the creativity tends to flow a lot easier, especially when you're around people that you don't know, especially a writing camp or something like that. So I think getting that business and knowing the business mm -hmm. and getting that out of the way, mm -hmm. you know, getting the mind out of the way so the heart can flow right. is, sure. is a big deal. I think that that was a big turning point for me is when I started getting deep into publishing. Mm -hmm. So Well, and you got to be, if you're running labels, you're working mm -hmm. with other artists, you're doing splits, you're collaborating. Mm -hmm. And you're still behind the mix console too. Yeah. You're still doing that, right? You're definitely, that, I think that's a passion of yours, right? Mixing. Yeah. I love mixing records. Uh -huh. You know, that's what I was, I went back to Muscle Shoals to mix that album that we tracked last year because uh -huh. I wanted to be in that space, that uh -huh. whole realm. So I went down there and especially mixing on a big console. Uh huh. You know, I don't get to do that very often. But you've got the home studio. You're mixing in the box at your house. I am mixing in the box. Uh -huh. um, UADs helped me do that. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. years ago, I was over at Green Day Studio, which was Jingle Town at that time, and mm -hmm. I was mixing an album on their B room on the SSL 9J. And Chris Dugan walks in, Green Day's engineer, and he's like, hey, man, you know, have you checked out this UAD stuff? And I'm like, oh, man, look, I got all this stuff. What do I need <laughs> plugins for? You know, I'm like, uh -huh. He said, oh, I'll throw an octo card in here tomorrow and then I'll show you a couple of things. And he started oh. pulling things up. So I started out with the full mix on the board and mm -hmm. the first song. Mm -hmm. By the last song, I was in the box and had like six sets of faders <laughs> monitoring mm -hmm. and doing everything in the mm -hmm. box. Mm -hmm. And it was great because it was a few years back when, you know, a lot of studios had just been closing and mm -hmm. fantasy had become kind of where I'd settled in and started to plant some roots and then fantasy closed its doors and so i was like you know what i gotta have a mix room at the house i'm done with this i just need to be completely self-sufficient at the house mm -hmm. and you know that it was good that i did that because you know during the pandemic that was crucial that i could do everything i needed to do out of the house except track drums mm -hmm. and Going back to Muscle Shoals. But so many great rooms, right? <laughs> yeah. To like you, you went to Muscle Shoals and you were able to track there, right? You booked yeah. out all the rooms. Well, that and the thing about Muscle Shoals, there's a spirit and an energy down oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we really got into it, you uh -huh. know. Um, so people had always wondered why during that 20-year span, everything that went through Muscle Shoals was the number one hit. Uh -huh. This place, I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere, right? Uh -huh. Well, the Tennessee River runs through there, and even the Native Americans, they said that there was a lady spirit that lived in the river and would sing songs to the people to protect them. It mm. was the singing lady of the river. Wow. So there's this whole even spiritual aspect to the land that's there. 
And so we really got into it. You know, we stayed on the river for a couple of days, took a dip in the river, you know, did nice. a little bit of riding. Nice. And, yeah. and, you know, the thing about Muscle Shoals, tying that into all the studios closing and everything, Muscle Shoals, they have a foundation where they protect those spaces. Hmm. They really honor culture and history and they preserve it. And people come down there to do tours all the time. So when you're in the middle of a studio session twice a day, you got to stop because 50 people come through on a tour to see this iconic place where all these amazing records were done. And it was just so refreshing after being in the Bay Area, which, you know, not to be a downer, but that will eradicate and pull up the roots of culture and history in a split second in the sake of office space, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. that, our condos, our condos, <laughs> more likely condos it's so, these so days. Sad, yeah. You know? yeah. Like, uh-huh. you know, it was just refreshing to go down there and see such a respect for culture and history mm. and music in general, mm-hmm. you know, just runs in the streets there <laughs> it's crazy but now you've got yourself set up you're, you're self-sufficient mm-hmm. you got your home studio so you can go track anywhere right oh yeah and i do which is great and you can lean on other engineers to run tracking sessions for you and then bring your projects back and mix right in the comfort of your own home that's a good feeling right absolutely i, I love that but looking forward now let's talk about the future a little bit you got yourself all set up you're a mix engineer so many people are jumping on different new technologies that are mm-hmm. presenting themselves. And obviously a big one that must be on your mind is Atmos. Yeah. Atmos, you know, the ability to break through the stereo barrier and now they're streaming in Atmos. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, headphone binaurally rendered Atmos mixes. And obviously, you know, the game industry's embraced this for a long time now, but here comes the music industry again. Mm-hmm. Right, the music industry. We've been trying to get the consumers to champion high definition audio. Mm-hmm. That didn't really seem to work out too well, you know, <laughs> in many different formats. And and now here comes Atmos. You know, how do you feel about that? What do you think is going to happen with the future of immersive sound? And particularly, I mean, listening to your music, I, I would think there's some really beautiful segments there that could benefit from an Atmos. It's style. in Atmos on Apple. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, we did Atmos mix. I love Atmos for music. Mm-hmm. When I was working for Dolby, I was constantly talking to R&D and just different people of like how can we apply this to music? You know, and at that time, it was still Dolby Digital and PL2 and you know, but you could take some of those decoders and you could do a PL2 fan out it wasn't discrete audio and you know i was playing around with some of that stuff but i was so excited when atmos for music started to become a thing something that they wanted to lead with and i went to back to dolby and did some mixing in the labs there i wasn't working again for them but just going back and checking out the atmos stuff that they were doing and i love it it's one of the most amazing things out there as far as a medium And I think that there is a lot, especially you start talking metaverse, you start talking any VR, anything. Yeah, there's a place for that. Specifically for the music industry as a sustainable model for engineers and producers. Right now, the jury's still out for me. Um, I do see a big push right now. All the labels are mixing their back catalogs in Atmos I love that because it's what that's doing is that's pushing a lot of revenue into engineer and producer, mix engineers specifically right. mm-hmm. into their pockets. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these, you know, big rooms that are popping up, these Atmos rooms everywhere. But the way that I sort of look at it is demand. The labels, they can continue to fund doing new projects 
and producing for Atmos. And I think that that will be used in a lot of virtual reality, metaverse. And when you start talking about that, yeah, there'll be a place for that. But when you start looking at everyday engineering and producing, you've got independent artists and you've got major artists. Nobody right now is making the consumer think that they have to have Atmos. It kind of stops there. And that's Dolby's model. They're a licensing company. Mm -hmm. They can get that chip and everything. They can get that chip in this coffee cup if they wanted to. <laughs> but And that's mine. And that's where the buck uh -huh. stops. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? So, All you but, need is a headphone jack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're experts at that. And it's a beautiful model, too. But like when you start talking about consumer marketing and the consumer going, I got to have that, I mean, they're not making decisions a lot of times based on what chip is in there per se right now. So a sustainable business model for, is it going to fund engineers and producers making just music a lot? I don't think that's going to last for too much longer unless there's a big change in the way that music is consumed. Portability still is reigns king. And right now, binaural is the only way that that's being really reproduced and my opinions on binaural is just sounds like a phasey stereo mix to me <laughs> interesting you know? yeah yeah and then they, and then so it's like okay well am i going to consume it on a sound bar mm -hmm. yeah maybe but back to how do people consume music music isn't like when we were growing up a static experience where i put it on my sit in front of my two speakers and mm -hmm. listen to this record Mm -hmm. No, you know, I'm not going to do that. A lot of people don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. It's more of a passive listening situation. Mm -hmm. It's in the background when you're chopping and, you know, drinking a glass of wine and mm -hmm. cooking and friends over and all of that. And mm -hmm. then a lot of people bring up the argument, well, yeah, now the Sono systems and everything, they can have, create an immersive environment. You know, they can talk to each other and see where the other speaker is in the room. Well, then we come back to this other barrier to entry to buy more speakers. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why 5.1, it doesn't take off, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been so, great business for Sonos. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And, uh -huh. you know, and I'm not poo-pooing on the, on the format at all. I just think it's really hard to get consumers to think that they need this. Uh -huh. And nobody's doing it. And it's not, quite frankly, Dolby's job to do that. They've done what they do. They've uh -huh. accomplished their business goals. They're uh -huh. getting Atmos out there on the professional end uh -huh. with the creative products to create it uh -huh. and the way to, on the consumer end to decode it. Yeah. What happens after that? Uh -huh. You know, so. Well, um, I mean, of course they want to see consumer adoption because yeah. for them that's just going to grow and grow and grow and, and it's going to propagate the business models. Mm -hmm. But I agree in, in many ways. I think the jury's out. A lot of the remixes of back catalog for me don't necessarily do the original mixes justice and it's hard to swallow sometimes. Uh, I'm not saying that's the case all the time, for sure. There's some compelling mixes out there. I definitely see it as a new format that you know, new music and new artists could embrace and do mm -hmm. cool stuff with, mm -hmm. make really cool sounding mixes with. And uh, I think it's going to be really exciting to see where it goes, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, but you're right. I, in many ways, I agree with you that around the, the whole concept of it. Something I believe is that, you know, in the metaverse, in that space, and we'll see new ways, hopefully, that, you know, music is consumed in that yes. regard. And I think that's going to be super exciting. Yeah, I think you know, so, and, too. And create opportunities, hopefully, for the music and for producers and mix mm -hmm. engineers like ourselves. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see where this goes. Well, this has been a really fun, engaging hour mm -hmm. for us. And I do want to end with another track of yours here. Yeah. This is a particularly beautiful track. I really enjoyed listening to this. Um, this is called The Search, right? 
Mm-hmm. So let's play this track out a little bit, and why don't you just tell us as we finish out our hour here, yeah, um, a little bit about this track, who the artists are on here. This has been a lot of fun, Michael. Thank yeah, you. man. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah. So let's check this out. This is the search. sounds really cool in Atmos. <laughs> I was just thinking that. That vocal just uh, goes all <laughs> around uh-huh. the room. Yeah. I mean, you're already panning it. It sounds great yeah. the way it is just in headphones mm-hmm. and a stereo mix. So tell us about the singer here. Uh, so that's Sean Johnson. Sean Johnson and the Wild Lotus Band. They're out of New Orleans. Uh-huh. Sean is very deeply steeped and trained in mantra. Kirtan. Kirtan. Like Kirtan. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. And... He studied with Jai Utal and just really, really very well trained in it. So a lot of the stuff that he's doing here, this is 5,000-year-old mantras that he's using, if not older. And there's certain notes that go with certain syllables. You know, it's similar to like tablas playing to where they're telling a story with the notes and the syllables that go with it. So... I wanted to reach out to Sean. He's also on Be Still Records as well, because I had this song where I wanted to talk about all the mistakes and all the things that are considered bad, as actually I wanted to pay homage to those, because that's what helps you learn, right? And so that's what a lot of these uh, mantras are about, is it's, I call them vocal prostrations to all the mistakes. (laughs) So honoring mistakes. And so, um, and how important those are in, in your path, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are. As you yeah. noted earlier, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a pandemic. Sean's usually on the road or he's teaching. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, man, I got this track. Let's collaborate. And he started sending me back this stuff. And it's like, wow, this is insane. And I So when you say I got this track, was that the instrumental components to it? Some of it, yes. Uh-huh. My creative process with some of these tracks. Especially right now, I'll take tape loops, effects pedals, and I'll get something running. I've got a piano at the house, a bunch of different synths. I've got an OB6. I might get a sequence going on that. I might drop a couple of them to a track on the four track and start looping it. Mm -hmm. Then I'll start to go to another instrument, and I will record that to a little Zoom recorder. 
stereo out of the mixer. And then I'll take these pieces from this channel piece of music that I just did that might consist of four different synths and four different tape loops. And then I'll throw that into Ableton and I'll start to program even more on top of that and add other acoustic instruments. Like there's a Chora here. That's a sample. So I'll send some of these basic drony sort of loopy things to an artist, a singer, and they'll give it back to me. And then I'll start to build more of the structural the arrangement around that. That's why I call this compositional ambient, because it's longer mm -hmm. format. Mm -hmm. The entire focus of it is textural and just emotional. Mm -hmm. There's no formulaic anything to it, mm -hmm. but it is a piece that moves and evolves and does things. So when I get, I said, here's this piece of music, then he sends it back, and then I continue to develop, send it back. Mm -hmm. And it's just this tossing it back and forth until it just becomes this thing. <laughs> How would you do that collaboration, that tossing back and forth? What kind of format were you working I'd in? I'd send an MP3, just, just bounce out of Ableton. Uh -huh. Then he would send me back the mp3 with his vocals sang over it and then i'd be like oh that's really interesting okay send me the tracks you know if or if we had any back and forth notes on what was happening he would do that and so then when, when you it say was send, time, send the tracks or is that the individual multi-tracks so those would be wave files at yeah uh, the wave files what sample rate 24 48 48 yeah. yeah okay cool yeah i done this album tried to because i was just working from the heart and not what i knew and trying to stay out of my head i actually all of my old tricks of mixing oh i'm gonna put a plate on this i'm gonna flip this i'm gonna reverse this i'm gonna do it. you know everybody's got their bag of tricks yeah yeah nothing worked uh -huh. anytime i tried to do anything on this album that was the bag of tricks or what i'd always done it made it sound cheesy oh, and yeah. kind of terrible uh -huh. like even a db or two of moving the reverb too loud mm -hmm. it just would lose the vibe mm -hmm. and it's like I kept doing these things. I'm like, but that's wrong. You know, that's not how engineering, we don't usually do that. I mean, I was doing weird, throwing stuff out of phase and doing stuff that an old school engineer would say, you're crazy. That's completely wrong. And I'm like, but listen to it, feel it. Uh -huh. It sounds and feels right. I don't care what the phase says. And some of those things, the panning and stuff that I'm doing, uh -huh. I would do weird phase stuff to where it does sound like it's moving forward and backwards and using things. You know, I like to use a lot of those spatializers and do really weird stuff. And, you know, yeah, if you go to mono, mm -hmm. it's going to sound terrible. But Dave Pensato said, if you're listening to mono, you got bigger problems than face. <laughs> yeah, well, this isn't meant to be played in the club either. So, yeah. you know, this is a beautiful listening experience. Yeah. Michael, like I said earlier, this has been a lot of fun. That's Thanks there. for sharing your path with us today thank you and this music is really beautiful and looking forward to great things from you man i should say more great things yeah yes, sir more coming soon the yeah. releases start uh, in march again nice so, what, yeah. what, what, what what can we expect a little sneak peek otis mcdonald did a remix uh -huh. um like a lo-fi beats uh -huh. jay dilla sort of vibe of the uh -huh. wake up call that's oh, on wow. here cool. uh, an artist called love star did another ambient mix and then i actually have a song with jay krishnamurti Woo! yeah what a beautiful note to end our Mentor My Mix podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, brother. Michael Scarita here on the Mentor My Mix podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. You can check out more about Michael Starita at his website, staritamusic.com. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion or want to contact me for any reason, we have a contact form on the Mentor My Mix website. 
That's mentormymix.com. Or feel free to email me at greg at mentormymix.com. Special thanks to Quinn Grodzins for the theme music and audio editing, Josh Valdez and Sean McKenna for audio and video production, and Corice Joubert for video editing and post-production.